Abortion is clearly wrong. I don't think anybody debates that. You wouldn't recommend that someone that you love have one. Okay, now, having clarified that, that mere statement doesn't eliminate the complexity of the situation. This is bullshit. America's leading industry is still the manufacture, distribution, packaging, and marketing of bullshit. Hey everyone, welcome back to the MBS Podcast. My name is Ian Savage, the philosopher in the room, otherwise known as the person who makes everybody miserable. So Josh, you went to Disneyland recently. Is that your way to uh, express uh, your childlike wonder in the fact that you're childless? <laughs> well, before I answer that question, hi everybody, I am Josh. Uh, I am the thespian in this conversation, aka Boom Boom Pow Pow, and Ian... How long are we going to go in this episode before you offend somebody? Uh, probably very, 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 not, very recently. It won't be you, long. It won't be you long. Do not, uh, you know, you're not kind and you make awful jokes. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, no. So, yes, I did just get back from Disney. And it's actually funny that you say that because there, I was fascinated the entire time that we were there. There was a very, very active gentleman who had big signs and, and a big old like, uh, it was I don't know how to describe it. It wasn't like a handheld um, what's the word megaphone? I'm looking for? Yeah, it wasn't like a handheld megaphone. It was like he had an amp, and then he had like the you know the walkie-talkie thing, and he was just like oh, screaming yeah, through the yeah. thing. Like but a essentially, PA, he was trying his best to convince the parents that were walking into Disneyland with their children that they were he that that Disney was tainting their their children with the devil, and that it was, Makes it sense. was actually wrong for them as parents to indulge these. You know what Disneyland is teaching their kids, and it's it's against God, and um, and it was very fascinating because he was very very animated by the fact that Disney has ties with Satan, and that we are ruining our children by letting them indulge in their childhood uh, dreams. So I feel that it, it it's interesting that even in a Disney standpoint, there is this kind of religious tension um, with some <laughs> few, and I feel that that might be a decent segue into our topic of conversation today because I do know that it's not going to be an easy one. Uh, that's for sure. I'm not going to lie to listeners. When Ian first brought this up, I was a touch hesitant uh, to cover it. But like anything else, I think that trying to understand something is very important and even so much more so if it's something that we don't you know, typically have to experience or deal with. But it's definitely something that's in the forefront of you know, the, uh, whatever cultural ethos culture, or, or right social now, yeah. understanding of, of things like that. So things, you know, obviously take more precedence and have more attention. And right now, um, we're back in the forefront of the issue that we're going to talk about today. So I guess, Ian, I'll probably let you take it from here since it was your idea. Uh, maybe we can share with listeners kind of what your thoughts were about why you wanted to kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, talk about abortion today. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems it's kind of funny because it seems that uh, some of the topics I've been coming up with lately, I know you've been a little bit more hesitant, not that to say that you just don't want to talk about them at all. Uh, but, you know, they're, they can be touchy and, and abortion is is no exception. And I think, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to talk about it, aside from one of the obvious things that we'll get into in a second, but um, it, it it seems like one of those ideas that is 
or one of those subjects that is not obviously controversial. You know, I was um, listening to NPR, believe it or not, this morning, uh, and I was uh, hearing about the um, uh, the recall election for uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California, and he, you know, it eventually failed, and and he gets to keep his uh, governor's seat. Well, his main competitor that sort of arose out of it is this, you know, conservative talk show talk show host, um, conservative radio host uh, Larry Elder. And, you know, one of the things that they were um, critiquing about him is that he has, you know, I, something along the lines, quoting, you know, paraphrasing here, that he has made controver- obvious controversial statements uh, about the election being rigged or, or election fraud, you know, leading, le- election fraud leading up to the um, 2020 elections and then has since walked them back. You know, when I heard that, you know, the, the, the line obvious controversial statements to me that got me thinking that i i think there are some topics that are so you know on out of come out of left field or they live on the edges of you know of thought that they must be controversial and so i think similarly with abortion you know it's this idea that is so heated um on you know different sides of the political spectrum that people come along with this very you know similar phrases like well it's controversial to talk about it and i think that it should be our jobs as podcasters and as, um, I don't know, do you want to call us ourselves intellectuals? Maybe not yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I don't definitely um, think I would use that but, term. I mean, maybe, maybe like, uh, you know, practicing intellectuals, I guess. Maybe right. We're trying yeah. To, yeah. Like to, doctors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ian, exactly like doctors. <laughs> right. Um, uh, you know, but I, I think it, I think we have a duty to to talk about these things and maybe to not make them controversial and just to understand them as as Josh was alluding to earlier. So, one of the you know first main reasons why I wanted to talk about this is this recent uh, Texas bill that is it's quite it's not banning abortions. It is um, it's not banning them out banning them outright. It is just putting. Uh, very large restrictions on abortions, but in a very strange way. So Josh, I don't know if you read anything about the law, but basically the uh, state of Texas. Has... <laughs> oh, I love, I love how you literally just ask me that and then just blow right through. You're like, Josh, sorry, I don't know sorry. If no, no, no. And to be fair, like I'm letting you discuss this because as you know, as I've read it, but at the same time, you know, to let listeners in on a little back secret when we divided uh, you know, what research would be done. It was made clear that Ian was going to basically do the most amount of research on the Texas law. So I'll let you do it. But I just still love that. Like in yeah, my head, yeah. your silence or your, your, your running over me was just like, Josh, I don't know if you've read this. You probably haven't. So here we go. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a little, a little behind the scenes, you know? Um, but no, I mean, you know, the reason, you know, I bring, you know, Basically, is I want to get your, I want to get your reaction to it because I think it's, and I mean, I know you're aware of it, you know, this, we, this podcast isn't scripted, but we definitely have a plan for it in case anybody is wondering. Um, but yeah, so, you know, this Texas bill, basically it, it sort of has this ban of abortions after the six week marker of pregnancy um, for women. And it, now it's not exactly six weeks. It's sort of like in between five and six weeks around the time when you could get a positive pregnancy test, you know, so from one of the take homes, but instead of, uh, banning or rather instead of, um, getting the women in trouble who are getting these abortions, it is putting the onus on individual citizens and their reporting of it, of the actual acts of the abortions to take action against those who 
perform the abortion. So like doctors and, and health clinics, it's just very strange, like work around to Roe v. Wade. There's even part of the bill that says you can't, you know, if you're, if you're, being sued for this. You can't use Roe v. Wade as a defense unless under certain uh, exemptions there. And so I just wanted to get your initial uh, thoughts on it before we get into some of the nitty gritty. If you know what you read about it, what you heard about it, what you're hearing in your circles, people's reactions to it. I mean, as one could imagine, it's, it's, you know, I guess to, to, to be dramatic here for theater arts is blasphemy. It's, it's, it's utter ridiculousness. It's, I don't know. I feel like it's almost like a slap in the face because it's they, I I don't know. And maybe this is again, this is my own kind of personal bias on it, you know, given my circle of friends and and the discussions that we've had. And, you know, as we all know, if you've listened to this podcast at all, you'll know that I tend to be more progressive and kind of more left leaning. And so there's obviously some feels that I have, but you know, in in my own biased opinion, I almost feel like they think that they're more clever than what they are. Like, I feel like Mm -hmm. they're also, every time you, I watch videos of them kind of proponing it they're you know, they say things like we're doing this. Don't forget that this is for the safety of women's healthcare. And you're like, Mm-hmm. what <laughs> like yeah. you know it's i don't know i guess i don't know I, I just feel like they think that they're so clever and then there's like a smugness that i can sense when they talk about these things of like you know just the self-justification for why and you know they're it's classic textbooks like they believe the ends justify the means um you know and uh, i don't know i just it just i guess i i find it really ironic because most of the states that are putting up these kind of rigorous abortion laws in, you know, mainly Texas because they've, they've passed theirs and the Supreme court has not done anything at this point in time mm-hmm. um, that it's, they're almost taking this approach that no, we, this is like, this is the right thing. Like we know what we're doing and we know that this is kind of, you know, what needs to be done. Oh, do not make us wear masks. We as our freedom. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, I don't know. It's just difficult because they're so, you know, when I say they're lightly people that tend to identify because online, there are people that use this argument when, when other people say, do your part, wear your mask, like, you know, and, and they say, well, what happened to my body, my choice? You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. there, some people are, are able to use that as a diss. And then those same people are not seeing it from the other way around. Well, if you're going to dish it out, you also have to follow by that standard too. And if you, Hold the belief or another belief is like that's been going around is that progressives believe in healthcare for all, but yet they don't want people who are unvaccinated to receive healthcare. Look how hypocritical they are, you know? And so it's like, if you're going to point out those hypocrisies, then you should also look into yourself in the sense of that. If you hold this base idea or, you know, a majority, I would argue on average that lean right leaning or that are tend to be more pro-life you know, are also in this camp of, of freedom and liberty as the Republican Party has, has tend to taken over. And so if you believe in this initial freedom of the individual, you know, it, it just, it, and especially in the mass context, because the argument for wearing one is that you're putting others' lives in harm. So if you're still going to not do that and be okay with that as your individual choice, how can you justify then that, oh, you're putting the quote unquote, you know, baby's life in harm. And that's why it's different when it's not really different. So to me, pot calling the kettle black, just a lot of hypocrisy here and a lot of misunderstanding. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Definitely some misunderstanding. Um, well, and I, and I want, I want to get into the political sloganing stuff because I find that's really, really interesting. Um, you know, but, uh, why don't we give some, some background just to this, 
just to this bill. And, you know, maybe, you know, one of the first things I should do too, is just like talk about Roe v. Wade for a second and at least what the actual decision was mm-hmm. um, just, you know, for some background. So on January 26, 22nd, of 1973, it was the Supreme Court that issued a seven to two decision in favor of Norma Norma McCorvey, otherwise known as Jane Roe, uh, that held that women in the United States have a fundamental right to choose whether or not to have abortions without excessive government restriction and struck down a previous Texas abortion ban as unconstitutional. So we are already having, you know, history with Texas and abortion bans. And the decision was uh, issued together with a companion case, uh, Doe v. Bolton, that involved a similar challenge to Georgia's abortion laws. So in this um, Texas bill, I went to uh, Texas, what is the name of the website? Texas Tribune. So a a local Texas online uh, news source. And so they sort of broke down a few of the points within the bill, and I took some of them just so we can sort of look at them for a moment. So it says one of them is this is one of the first things I brought up is that civilians enforce the law through civil lawsuits. So it says the requirements of this subchapter within the bill shall be enforced exclusively through the private civil actions. So again, it's private citizens finding that someone has had an abortion or uh, there was a a clinic that gave an abortion and then go to make the suit. So it's not an actual, um, it's not an actual uh, like court case that is taken by the state. It is by the citizens. And then with that, the state will award a $10,000 bounty quote unquote uh, for successful lawsuits. So if a claimant prevails in an action brought under the section, the court shall award, um, basically an injunctive relief sufficient to prevent the defendant from violating the subchapter statutory damages in an amount of no less than $10,000 for each abortion that the defendant performed costs and attorney's fees. And so, oh, and then, you know, the other part of this too, is that anyone can sue regardless of whether some harm was done to them. So any, any person other than an officer or employee of a state or local government entity in the state may bring a civil action. So I wanted to focus on this for a moment. In that the state is removing themselves uh, away from this issue, which is, you know, it's, it's in a way it's like diabolically clever. You know, it's the fact that it's like, well, we don't have to violate Roe v. Wade. We don't have to violate the U.S. Constitution if we actually just remove our hands from it and put the onus on the citizens uh, for going out and doing this. And part of me wonders, like, are are people in Texas really going to go out and be doing this, you know, for the $10,000 reward? I mean, are, are abortions that big of an issue in Texas? I don't know. Um, and frankly, I mean, this just seems like a route to, you know, forgive the term, a route towards totalitarianism when we, you know, maybe in a small, small T form where we are allowing our citizens to go out and, you know, basically tattletale, on uh, uh, on each other. It's sort of similar in the early days of COVID in like California, for example, when um, they were asking citizens to report people for gathering in, in large groups of, you know, large parties, you know, and then, the, you know, those parties or, or someone getting fined in, in the wake of that. So I don't know, Josh, I mean, do you think this is the right way to go about this? I, I, I suspect you don't think so. But I mean, what you know, what the hell is Texas trying to do here? You I don't know. It's different. There's, and it's again, it's all about perspective. So in, in one argument, one person might say that this leads back to civic duty and responsibility. 
And if they sure. believe that they're trying to save a life or be helpful, and this is the, the crux of, of the abortion debate in any world, the, the severe moral implications that are, that, are, that are put forth to this. And I know we're going to talk about this later, about certain terminologies and why they're problematic, you know, and, you know, it's essentially things like pro-life and pro-choice and, and how yeah. vague that is and how it you know, kind of dualistically categorized, generalizes in a sense. But, you know, I, I don't really see it that way. I think you're right. I think, and again, I, I'm going to be the first to acknowledge that what I'm about to say might veer towards a slippery slope argument. Mm-hmm. But I just think that, you know, my brain works. If you look at the religious fever of a state like Texas and the amount of religious people that are there, you know, there is this, I, I believe that there's a threat to separation of church and state um, with this rule, because if you leave it up to individuals, you know, they, I, I, I you know, I guess, I don't know when you look at online, how, it, how everybody's heard this, this phrase that, you know, good news travels fast, but bad news travels faster. You know, when you look at comments online and typically what I see is people that are frustrated or angry or upset tend to be more prone to responding um, or commenting on certain things than those who've had a decent experience. And so if you look at the argument of who's going to be more upset by people taking these choices, it's going to be those people that are religiously motivated. And I think that they are going to be doing or trying to be doing way more tattling. And it could even in- increase to looking for those things and, and actively searching for things to tattle on, especially when you put a dollar amount on it, some sort of incentive for that. So you're right. Mm-hmm. Is it diabolically clever in a sense? Um, because they're trying to say that, no, we are separating ourselves from this. It's the, you know, it's the people that are going to be kind of managing this. However, it's like, it's still going to be like, once the complaint is done, it's still going to have to go through the state courts and other things of those natures, whether it be civil as well. Like there are implications that have to do with certain liberties that I feel that the government is, the role of the government is responsible for upholding. And there are issues in that regard too. And so, I, again, this is the thing where I think it's kind of skeezy to do this and, and maybe they are familiar with the type of people that they have in their state. And this is why they believe it might be, um, you know, more a, a positive outcome for what they are hoping to achieve. You know, if, if they just go, we're leaving it up to the people and they do have a problem with abortion, then their theory therefore would be that they believe that there are more people willing to report than not report. Yeah, for sure. You know, the other, the other angle on this too is... I mean, the, the fact that, you know, it, they are limiting it to um, somewhere around the six weeks marker, you know, and any time before that is, uh, is quote unquote fine to get an abortion. Um, you know, and then like, of course, within the law, there are actual exceptions that you can be um, that can be sort of parsed out. But there's still like very far and few between like where an exception can be made or not. But that six weeks, I mean, you know, you and I talked off Mark, I mean, talked off Mike about that timeline most women don't know that they're pregnant uh, by six weeks you know maybe they will if they're lucky if they if they notice a missed period um or if they happen to take a um a pregnancy test um that just seems strange to me like why you know i understand that it's it's arbitrary but at the same time like if you don't know like you're pregnant you know and then it's past the point it's sort of entrapment in a, in a lot of ways yeah like, i mean american I uh, americanpregnancy.org states that that weeks four through seven typically been like typically are when women at least discover that they're pregnant. Right. And that's an average, you know? And, yeah. and so there's certain things. And again, I think this plays to the idiosyncraticness of, of each individual, you know, each woman's going to be different. They're going to have different signs. Some are more severe. That might be easy, easier to detect. Some might be less severe and harder to detect. 
You know, mm-hmm. you are putting this very, very short timeline, you know, that is, and again, it's, to me, it's simply just unrealistic given the mass experiences from, you know, from, from the friends that I've spoken to. And, you know, there's some be stuff I'm going to talk with my mom because I trust me, listeners, she's given me permission. Um, but my, my mother has <laughs> had, my mother's had two abortions herself. You know, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, she, she had me when she was, I think a week before she was 20, she was 19, almost about to be 20 when she had me. And, you know, we've had discussions on her choices as to why she has chosen to get abortion the two times that she did versus why she decided to have me and my two brothers and, you know, getting some insight from her, you know, it's, it's a lot of this, you know, individualistic mind frame that's connected to bigger social problems. And, you know, these are things that I feel like are neglected, you know, very, very heavily. And, and what Texas is doing and what other states are, are, are attempting to do as well. For sure. And I think, you know, a pregnancy within that first trimester, you know, typically I think why abortions have been, you know, more or less, I mean, I don't know what the current restrictions are in the U.S. or per state on like when the cutoff is. I mean, on average, I, it's it's on average. I would say that it's twenty weeks to twenty eight weeks. It's, it's, okay, it's that, within the first trimester. Very rarely does it dip into the second trimester, but a lot of the times it has to do with sort of, of course, extenuating circumstances. But majority of what I did in my research on most states uh, that that have you know that are not so aggressive conservatively uh, typically tend to cap it at about twenty to twenty eight weeks. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, because I know there have been very special exceptions where you can have an abortion all the way up to almost bringing it to term. And, and I mean, those are, you know, very rare, but I know it happens. Um, you know, but, but that first trimester, I mean, that's still very crucial for family planning, right? I mean, that's sort of the whole reason why birth control and abortion became the debate that it did after the sexual revolution is because women were going to work more and we needed a um, we needed a medical system basically put in place where we can figure out like what we want to do. Like, do we really want to bring a kid in the world where before it wasn't really a choice um, that there wasn't really. I mean, there may have been debate, but it really wasn't um, a choice on that level. And I mean, you know, just from my personal experience, you know, when we when uh, my wife told me that she was pregnant, you know, it was probably when she got pregnant in like around Christmas time of. 2016 and then we we found out she was pregnant maybe almost into february you know so that's almost eight weeks uh, of time there and then we still needed to figure out what we were going to do within i don't know maybe a month after that like into march uh something like that um you know and so it takes time to figure out like what like how are you going to do this how are you going to raise a child you know and so abortion um, is an option, you know, for people who don't know what to do. I mean, you know, I specifically, uh, some fr- close friends of mine, um, they, a couple of years ago found out they were pregnant and they ended up terminating the pregnancy, be- uh, very, very early on, you know, but they ended up terminating it because where they were at with their lives, you know, they were still, they're still young. They're still just working things out for themselves. So they thought that bringing a child into the world would be irresponsible you know, just on their part, because they didn't think that they would be able to, to raise it. So if we didn't have that option, then who knows, like, would that child being born, especially, you know, that was a little bit before the pandemic, right? So, uh, you know, bringing a child into that world, then, I mean, is that the most responsible thing? And I think one of the more bigger, you know, bigger questions about this is that I think a lot of uh, conservative people are so 
against abortions is that you know they talk about this pro-life thing and maybe we can move into the uh into the political slogans here you know but they talk about being pro-life but when the actual child is born they never talk about the quality of life and i feel and i feel like that's the one of the biggest oversights in a lot of these bills and specifically with the you know uh, the texas uh bill is that there was never any foresight into what the woman is going to have to be dealing with um you know for 18 plus years, you know, probably longer after this child is born. They don't think about like, you know, uh, uh, genetic risks, you know, that are being, you know, that are somewhere tied into the room. They don't think about the health of the, of the mother. Uh, they don't think about postpartum depression. They don't think about disorders. They don't think about economic justifications. They just are concerned with what is going on with the womb. And I think that a lot of, you know, a lot of that comes back to um, the sort of Christian conservative notion of babies being inherently born, you know, they're inherently endowed with souls and being special. I think that's the crux of it too. Like biologically speaking, you know, in yeah. case there's some out there who, who, are, who are not fair of this, you know, and everything is an average typical pregnancy lasts about 40 weeks broken into three trimesters. Um, they determine this by the first day of your last uh, menstrual period. Um, and there are two months uh, basically like we talked about this a little bit off mic, but at, they roughly say like, you know, on average at the two month mark, um, uh, that's when the limbs will begin to develop organs, such as the brain sensory organs and the digestive tract begin to take shape. And it's consensus through the scientific community that by the end of the third month, your baby is, is fully formed with organs and, and you know, extremities present and, you know, all that other stuff. And so, you know, I have from, from PubMed.ncbi that abortion is defined as the expulsion of a fetus from the uterus before 28 weeks, um, you know, and, and the, you know, the viability, too, is, is, a, is a big proponent of that, too, of when the baby mm -hmm. can survive on its own and when does it need a mother. But I, you know, just kind of getting those things out. Also, the statistics show that about 91% of all abortions on average happen in the, within the first trimester. Um, like I said, sure. very rarely does it happen outside of that for special cases, you know, and then, you know, they did this, this study here, if I have the facts that 70, this is, this is the study from 2004. So it's a little dated, but I still think it's, it's important to kind of bring it up. 73% of women who had an abortion in the United States had said that it had to, it, it translated back to some sort of financial issues, um, being able to afford a child or, or properly, you know, care for one. Um, and so yeah. like these, these statistics are interesting too. And, you know, and, and everything that kind of, capitulates to to what's going on it, it does boil down to this this kind of understanding of of terminologies and definitions and so where i thought would be best to start is i was okay so i guess let me let me say this ian and i'll get your thoughts on this i don't want to be too yeah. empty but i was watching no, uh, a few videos about certain philosophers discussing kind of the abortion debate and you know, one of the philosophers I was listening to, and, and I apologize, I'll try to get one of the video, but I don't quite remember his name. But the, the point of focus is he said that they are when you when you're using terms and, and rhetoric, it's important to distinguish that. And he said the problem with the abortion debate is that there's kind of three terms that kind of get brought up. There's life, there's human being and there's persons. Mm. And he believes that the term person is the most accurate term to use um, if you're going to be touching this debate. Cause he said life can exist without being a person or a human being, you know, a example he gave was your dog, you know, or any sort of kind of wildlife animal. That's, that's life that exists, breathes, feels pain, yada, yada, who's he been on a human being. And there's also argument that people can be a human being, but not a person. 
Because, you know, the whatever definition you define a person, maybe somebody that can think for the future, that's conscious. You know, that example would be people that may have just recently been brain dead, um, you know, that are that are being kept alive by machines with no cognitive or mental function. Um, and as you can tell in certain medical contexts, like there are different things you can do in that state. And then lastly, finally, it's what is a person? So at the end of the day, the first question is, is a fetus considered a person? Mm-hmm. You know, would somebody argue that it's alive? Depending. Would somebody argue that it's a human being? Possibly. But realistically speaking, it's it's defining for yourself what you believe a fetus to be. And your whole entire emotional understanding, which connects to your cognitive, your logical understanding, which connects to the experiences and feelings you have, really do, really do, like, start from that base question. And I feel like a lot of the you know, arguments, the reason why it's always yelling at a wall and there's no progress being made is because both sides are making their points using different definitions of what yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, totally. I, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, what our starting points are, you know, really dictates uh, the the direction of, of conversations and, and debate. <clears throat> and, you know, the notion of personhood, I mean, that's, it, it's funny because I mean I, I agree that person is probably the the better term that we should be you know focusing on when it comes to something like uh, like abortion or like human rights or something like that. But at the same time, like that's tricky, right? So you know we would consider you and I where we are persons. You know we are people. You know we we have um, sufficient cognitive functions to be able to reason and make decisions for ourselves. We can look back at the future and the past. Um, we can rationalize. We can, you know, we can consent to things. Well, yes, um, we, can we can look can, back can into the future. Oh, uh, you know, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> you know, but a uh, but a, an eleven year old. I mean, they can't vote. They don't really have the same cognitive functions as somebody our age. Um, they don't have the life experiences. But you know, they are also a person. Um, you know, and you know, you could take this further and further back, like, okay, so my son is four years old, like he's a person, you know, but maybe two years, you know, two years prior, like, is he a person? Yeah. Like he's, you know, like he's, he's there, you know, but then you take that further back into infancy and like, they're not, I don't know, like, they're not really a person. They're just a baby, <laughs> you know, they, they just, they, they need, so they're so vulnerable that they, they can't really do anything for themselves. And uh, no, I guess uh, the point that I'm making, okay, to get well, that, cause I want to push yeah. back on that just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So the point that I'm making is that the, the personhood thing is a, it's a gradual and, and, and variant. It's, it's sort of a dynamic shape that comes into form when a, you know, when a child is growing in, into being a person. And I think that you can't really demarcate where that personhood comes into being because over time there are little bits and pieces like, Oh, this child can do this on his own, but he still needs, they still need this help here. So like, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear what, where you want to push back on because I don't know exactly where you could call someone a person. Um, so yeah, I'd love to, I hear. guess what I'm pushing back on is, 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 I mean, and again, like like we've like we've said before, my my answer is not absolute, and and no right thing. But <laughs> in the way that I kind of view it, is that there there's a there's a processy going on, and like even though babies might be necessarily stimuli, as in like I'm hungry or I'm tired or I'm cranky, but there's there's a, an attempt to communicate. You know, there's an attempt to 
you know, even if we don't understand the thought process going on, it doesn't mean that they're not happening. I mean, you know, b- babies have preferences. Like, you know, I've, my friends now are all having kids and you know, like, I'll go hang out with one of my f- friends with kids and their baby likes this sort of music, you know, and then you go to another household and their baby enjoys this kind of music. So there's even on a lower level of soothingness and things, there's, there's even preferences starting to kind of form. And I think that it's that, yeah. You know, kind of development in that sense that has that 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 the ability to to start to develop cognitive fun- functioning and and also too if you look at it you know like you said children don't have all rights because their parents hold a lot of stuff but they do have some rights um, and typically yeah from my understanding most of those rights take place when the baby's born um, and that could be an argument there for for different stuff but Ian I'm, I'm not I'm I'm not opposed I'm sympathetic to what you're saying there's really no way to define that either because well, people can have different interpretations for sure. And I mean, I was really only giving, you know, just sort of one point to it and, and I'm open to your point as well. I mean, because, you know, to be sympathetic here to that, you know, to that point of view is that when, before my son was born, for example, there were times um, where I thought, you know, I, I thought about the prospect of meeting, of meeting my future son, right? Like the, like his future self was very real to me even though he hadn't even been born yet. You know, I had no, I had no idea what his personality would be like. I had no idea what he would look like, um, you know, but there was a, a future version of him that I wanted to get to know. Similarly, now there is a future version of him that I want to know. It's also sort of works in the reverse. Like I sort of reminisce uh, a little bit about what he was like, you know, when he was younger. So like there's that personhood, I, I, I think transcends time in that regard. And uh, it's basically a, a long winded way of saying that. I, I think I agree with you. Sure. Um, it's just, it's just difficult to make that demarcation. Well, there's a thought experiment that kind of clarifies this. And, and it's one I heard back a while ago that says, basically the argument is that in, in a theoretical context, it's easy, especially if you're somebody who is pro-life to, to say that, you know, maybe an embryo or a, you know, a fertilized egg, that's the moment of conception or yada, yada, who's is equivalent to, you know, a human life, an actual baby um, mm-hmm. that has been born. And, you know, but the thought of experiment goes like this. It's, it's imagine that you are standing in front of a small like medical clinic and everybody has kind of been evacuated. And then like the flames are going up and then you have one person who stumbles out, who is, kind of smokes in their lungs, they're kind of unable to move, and they tell you that everybody made it out except there is a a chest in one room that has 50, you know, impregnated, like 50 impregnated eggs or, you know, embryos that are, you know, that are like all frozen and, and stayed in a state of, of like, I guess the best way to describe it is like they are contained and their sustained yeah. life is in there, but you know, they're, they're going to eventually they're under stasis. Yeah. Yeah. They're under stasis. A good, good call. And then in the other room, there is a, is a newborn baby who is crying and the building's on fire and you only have time to go into one room and save you right. know, either the case of 50 embryos or the actual baby. And a, you know, a lot of people are asked when faced with this question, what do you save? Do you save the case of embryos or do you save the actual crying baby? And he would argue that most people in that situation would probably choose the baby um, and not the embryos, even though the embryos might be, you know, 50 potential kids, um, which, you know, you can look at, but so that, that's they might that, be future persons. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. Do you have any, like, do you have any thoughts well, on that thought experiment? Or? Yeah. I mean, 
uh, you know, I think uh, again, you know, it's easy for me, you know, it, it, you know, I would go in and save the baby, you know, but uh, you know, I, I can understand the, the, the argument, the argument for the other side too, that like those might be future persons. However, their, their future is still in question, right? Where the, the infant's uh, future, the immediate future is very obvious, right? Like they are either going to live if you save them or they're going to burn a horrible death and they're going to, it's, it's not going to be great for them, you know, even if it's a short period of time. And so that's what people I think fail to consider is that a, an embryo, even a, a recently fertilized embryo, the level of experience um, that that embryo can have is very, very small. I mean, you know, after, you know, after a week or two, the neural tube starts to form, but even then, like, they're not really experiencing things, you know, because there are still lots of brain cells to grow. There's still lots of uh, bodily functions that have to come into, uh, to the fore for them to start experiencing. And even then, you know, when they start to become a very small, uh, small fetus, like their experience is still very, you know, relatively low. And so, you know, the, the, the context of suffering becomes important because how much can those infants versus the embryos suffer? That's you know, what I was going to say argue, too. That's, yeah. that's the question, well, the capacity yeah. for pain. Yeah. You know, one, one would make one would the argument that, that those... yeah, the baby has the baby that's born has a capacity for pain that the fire will if not pleasant, but the embryos have no sense of, of understanding of pain. There's, there's Correct. not existing yeah. yet. And that's, that's a very prominent question to ask, you know, like you said about quality of life too. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. that, and that's also too, what like animal activists say too. They're like, you know, how they define something that's, that's, you know, living or, or sacred to not do that is, is it's capacity to feel pain. For sure. As one of the, you know, the other, not all of them. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, the other, the other thing too, um, before we get more into the political slogans here, and I'll promise we'll get into that, but um, you know what, what I was sort of thinking about with being able to sue doctors, for example, for, for performing abortions in, in somewhere like Texas, you know, I, I, I think that goes against a lot of what we, uh, a lot of what the burdens that we place on our, medical industry, especially our physicians, you know, in the country and across the world, you know, because now granted, I've never been to medical school. I, I don't know what exactly you learn. You know, I know you learn a lot of, bio, you know, a lot of biology, a lot of chemistry, sciences, uh, physics. Um, but, you know, from my understanding, you know, it's sort of an unwritten rule, but when you become a physician or a doctor, you sign a Hippocratic oath. It might be, you know, metaphorically that you signed it, but you, you take on an oath to do no harm. Right. And so if you are in a position where a, you know, you may be sued by an individual citizen, you know, in the state of Texas, but if you're, but if a woman comes to you who is pregnant and needs an abortion because either they will die or experience some type of suffering, you know, the, I think the doctor or physician has a, frankly, an ethical obligation because of their profession, that, that ethic, those ethics are tied to their profession, they have that obligation to do what is in best interest of their patient. And when it comes to what we were just talking about, that ability to suffer or, or the ability to experience pain or, or just have those multitude of experiences, you have to weigh your options, right? Who is going to suffer more, the fetus if I perform this abortion or the mother who might have years and years of turmoil, she might die during the pregnancy. You know, she has all this economic um, issues that might come from that postmodern depression. So you have to consider like, okay, again, what is the immediate um, outcome? 
it's probably going to be with the woman who's who's pregnant rather than uh, rather than the unborn fetus. And that also gets tricky too, Ian, because yes, do, don't I agree that that on average you could describe several contexts where you might think it's warranted or, or this or that, but I think the crux of those that you know tend to identify with it being the woman's choice is that mm-hmm. you know regardless of why the woman is making that choice, it is her right to make that choice, and. That is, to me, really the the crux of where the opposition has a problem with, you know, and it's it's this this sure. disagreement on the right to make the choice given other parties involved. Wait, and, so you're hold on. Re- let me ask you a question. So is it you're saying is the reason why people might be opposed for, to uh, a woman's choice over her body when it comes to something like abortion? Is it because they you know, I don't know if this is. Is it because you think that they have a problem with a woman making a choice? Do you think that might be part of it? Or is it just the fact that it seems taboo and in a religious context? I mean, I think that religion is definitely a point to talk about. I I, I would Mm -hmm. argue that most people... So so again, we're going to kind of go down this rabbit hole because, you know, this might sound difficult for some who are religious, but I I personally don't believe in a soul. (laughs) Like... um. And that's just, I have my personal reasons for that. So for me, when mm-hmm. I view kind of this idea of, of life and existence, you know, there's this argument of, and again, this is, I'm just tr- be completely theoretical here and trying to kind of get rid of all emotion of it. But it's like, there's this capacity to feel pain and not feel pain. And there's this, this level of existence that, you know, if, if something never was to be and was stopped from being, then they would never have known what it is to be. And so there's no pain. There's no mm-hmm. like sadness. There's no, you know, there's no negative or, or suffering emotions because nothingness is nothingness. Now, yes, some, <laughs> some people are going to say, well, what about all the happiness and the pleasantries and all these other things? I'm not discrediting that those things exist or that they're important, but you know, just purely from a standpoint of, a choice, you know, I believe that the person who is, you know, making that choice should be the woman who is involved, not necessarily equating the fact that there is a soul that is, that is on the table here. That's being wagered for this, which is, mm-hmm. you know, brings me to the other thought experiment, um, that I kind of run wide by you, but I figured, I don't know if you've had any, anything else to say. I don't want to just, jump well, that. I guess I'll just say that I have, I I kind of I kind of more or less agree with you. I guess I just have a a complicated relationship with the word soul. Um, I don't think that we have anything in us like an essence uh, or something immaterial that is in our body that that retains again that retains some kind of essence of us that is comes stems from some type of supernatural. Um, you know, deity. I, 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 I'm pretty skeptical about that, but, um, the word soul itself, you know, we get from the word suke in ancient Greek, in ancient Greek, which translates the word psyche, which comes, you know, which is where we get the word psychology. And it was more or less referred to the use of our mind rather than our soul, but they were kind of interchangeable a little bit. I mean, I'm sure there might be some, you know, philologists or classic, uh, you know, scholars that might just agree with me a little bit, but there, but so I feel like the, the, the word soul has a bit of a, you know, um, uh, uh, colored history there and how it came to be used in the Christian sense of something immaterial, um, that flowed through our body, like a life force or something like that. So I don't think there's that, but the word soul 
I don't know. I, I, I would need to think about that for a little bit, but um, I mean, like, like you were saying though, I think that, you know, yes, of course, before, before you come into existence, before you're conceived, you know, you have no sense of life, you know, in, in that before time. So if, if you're taking that away, um, and you're, you know, you're just a clump of cells or you're just starting to become uh, a fetus. You don't have any reference point for what life is. So it's not the worst thing in the world to be, ha- to have that taken away from you. You know, it's sort of only when you start to develop quite a bit more and, you know, because infants or fetuses rather can be sort of aware in the womb, um, after a certain point. And so it's at that point where you're like, well, they kind of have a sense of, of what living is like. It's only after they're born, do they get a real, you know, it it just hits them right in the face. Um, so yeah, so I, so I don't know. Uh, the, the soul thing is weird. Um, but I agree. I guess that's the, you know, the point I'm just trying to make here is that like that argument obviously is, is, is not, unwounded it's not wrong but it also doesn't really hold any sort of sway if you're in conversation with those that that are very very much you know anti-abortion pro-life and it's like right they you know because they're just like they would argue that you know denying that life is 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 something that's very traumatic and and awful and Mm -hmm. you know but on a scale of what we feel and how we think you have nobody's thinking or feeling, then there's no real emotion to have. So like, you know, on a, I don't know how do you say that on a very, very unemotional level, there's a sound logic there. But as we've stated in this podcast prior, we don't operate, you know, in an, in an unemotional, like logical place, you know, we operate from a place of emotion. And so just trying to acknowledge that, I think that the, the crux is, and maybe soul's not the right word. Maybe we can say like life, um, you know, like that's the, the word that's thrown around is you're, you're wasting a life or you're getting rid of a life or you're choosing to end one before it begins, you know, but you know, are you that, that maybe that's the question there. Like you're ending a life before it begins, but if it has not begun, is there really an end? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, I, that's like your attempt to be to wax poetic. Well, yeah. maybe, okay. Maybe, but no, okay. Let me can... show the thought experiment though. I, I really want to say this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, please. So, please. Um, a thought experiment, and I can't remember who brought this up, but it was essentially the idea that let's say that a woman gets drunk and then she wakes up the next morning and she is now like in a hospital attached to the world's greatest violinist. Um, and she now finds out that, you know, she can either remove herself from it to save herself, but in, in turns ends the violinist life or she could stay connected to the violinist and have that violinist survive. And the goal is, is that morally speaking, is this person wrong for removing herself from the violinist, even though there might've been a portion of her that never asked to be in that situation in the first place. And there are things that are going on within her that she would need to be removed from it. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, first, first of all, I, I would ask who attached the violinist uh, to this woman. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, how nice is the violinist? I mean, I don't know. Like, because it's, you know, playing the playing the violin right is not inherently good on its own, right? So, okay, so here's where we're going to get tricky into, into philosophical stuff. Okay, let's. Let's break this down in a few in a few respects. So this person is a violinist, and we're going to equate this with a baby because 
the greatest violinist of all time. The great, yes, the greatest violinist in all time. So, so either living or dead. So, like he will be the greatest. So, like even before him, there's no greater violinist, and even after him, there will be no greater violinist. Is that what we're? I would just say that for the context of it, at the moment, he is renowned as the greatest violinist, or (laughs) she is renowned as the greatest violinist. Yeah, I'm really curious where you found this thought experiment. Um, so okay, so the, so playing the violin, being the being the best violinist in, in our current moment, we have to ask ourselves what is the inherent value of the violinist and and her and their ability to play the violin. Now, it could bring millions of people lots of joy. We could argue that art itself has some inherent meaning to the world. Um, we could argue that it doesn't have any utility and therefore um, isn't useful to us in any way, shape or form, you know, but more or less, I think a lot of people would say it's like, well, you know, the best violinist in the world that brings a lot of joy and meaning to people's lives. Um, But it is only the violin. Similarly with a baby. Now let's exclude the fact that it is just a living being, right? What is a, what is a baby function? Now, uh, function as well. It is a progenitor of your genes. It carries on a legacy. Um, they can have interests. They can change the world later on. They might become a murderer. Like we don't know. You know, like that future is more or less uncertain. Whereas we know the certainty of the violinist. We know what they do. Then we have to add in the fact that these are people. So. The violinist, I don't, you know, I don't know the age, the supposed age of the violinist, but like we're presuming that they've had a good life. You know, with the, they're the best violinist in the world. They probably make a decent amount of money. Of course, now they have to carry around this woman, um, <laughs> you know, but like we're presuming that they have they've had, you know, an interesting and experienced uh, life, whereas the baby has not. But they are presented with that life, the, the possibility of having an experienced life. So as far as the analogy is concerned. I don't know if it's one to one, but I think as far as what should the woman do, I think it would probably be in her best interest to sever ties with the violinist because now her life is tied to this person, right? Whereas before, like now her future has been made certain, whereas before the the possibility was uncertain and there could be much more to life then. Whereas now it's like, there's only one thing. And that is beautiful. And I think that's really what I kind of got out of it. And I think the the point of it is establishing that because it's the world's most famous violinist, like there is already like a set path that this person is on that has Mm -hmm. been on fame. And if you are attached to this person and you, you know, and not even willingly, like you just kind of woke up and now you either attach. And if you disconnect, it's kind of like that. Is it on the onus of that person? And like you said, it's, you are now tied to this person for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't ask to be in that position, you know, is it morally incorrect from you to detach yourself from that? And one would argue that it would be in the best self-interest for her to do so. Um, and, you know, and again, they're, they're not perfect arguments. It, it, it reminds me of the, you know, of the idea of if somebody tells you that if you don't do this particular thing, I'm going to kill your best friend. And then you don't do that thing. Are you to blame uh, for your best friend dying? Or is it the person who put you in that position is to blame? <laughs> right yeah it's kind of like um this is i'm i pardon the sick joke you know but it's like if if you know two guy friends one of them is hazing the other guy friend and you know maybe the one one of the guys is asleep and so the other guy whoops out his dick and puts it in the guy's mouth and he's like hey stop him sucking my dick because you're gay like it's 
you know, it's it's kind of like, well, hold on now. Who's who's putting di- who's dick in whom's mouth? What does know? this have to do um, <laughs> with fucking anything? <laughs> Man. I'm just following the logical, you know, example. I guess anyway. you have like the worst um, examples possible. <laughs> Like the most amount of BS. I mean, look, to get back on topic here. <laughs> um, I, I think maybe is what we should do is we, I think we should get down to the nitty gritty of, of the political slogans specifically. Let's do that. That's life and see, choice. Quit reading my mind. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I was like, look, we've right. talked a little bit about this, but let's kind of get clear here about the, uh, basically the terminology or the rhetoric that's politically used and, and, and identified as each side of this argument. So I don't know what side you want to start on. Yeah. So well, I think, you know, it's, you know, I think we should just say like these are these aren't just moral platitudes that it is that are something to be taken held as truth, right? They are political slogans. You know, so when somebody says that they are pro-life, why would anybody say that you're anti-life? You know, unless you're, you know, dark side from the uh from the DC universe. You know, like nobody would say that they are against life. You know, unless you're an anti lenalist unless you are want everybody to die, some ultra pessimist or something like that, uh, a psychopath, like nobody's going to say that you're anti-life. Well, look, to play devil's um, advocate here, Ian, what if I said to you that if you felt that the life of the potential child is being born, that you were okay with like not letting that life come to fruition, that tells me that you would tend to be more anti-life than life. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, that's interesting. And I, and I'm, you know, and I have, I actually have an example for you, but that's a little bit later. Essentially it's Um, the implication of the belief of the person, their, their projection of judgment, you know, and that's, I feel like that's kind of where, in my opinion, where the pro-life term came from, they are perceiving a choice as anti-life. And they are taking mm-hmm. a stance that I'm pro-life. But I think what you're trying to allude to is that that is taking something so complex and trying to fit it into such a simplistic binary yes life, no life, that nothing is that complicated. And again, you asked me this, why did I bring up states that have the death penalty? Well, oh. you know, <laughs> the reason being is because if you look at the states on here that I put that have legal death penalties, it's like Mississippi, Texas, Alabama. All of these states that tend to be their governments, wherever you say, tend to advocate for being pro-life. They argue that, especially in the context of abortion, but they still hold like things like death penalties, which seems to mm-hmm. me, like you said, would be it seems very anti-life, you know, or the quality of the life of a child is very anti-life. And so, you know, the crux of it is like, here's these people saying pro-life and they're narrowing this one context into this like this tight knit binary yes or no black or white situation when on other aspects it's not that way and so why is it not that way for that as well for sure you know and i mean you know just looking at other sort of slogans too i mean and and why why these you know political slogans are they they sort of trap you in a way um you know and that's why like when you try to argue against some of the people who hold these positions like they they get you in this like weird spiral now this again this is not to disparage um, other movements, but look at Black Lives Matter or the sort of decree of anti-racism. Nobody wants to be pro-racism unless, you know, the racists out there or, you know, like nobody wants to say that black lives don't matter unless, you know, again, like unless you actually think that, you know, and so it makes it difficult when you have these positions, especially on abortion that is either pro-life or pro-choice. Okay. Perfect example of this. I think there are lots of people who don't want to get the vaccine 
for COVID-19 or they don't want to wear a mask, right? Now, some of, you know, we might call them anti-vaxxers. You know, I myself am, it's it's weird to call myself a pro a pro vax, you know, but I got vaccinated and I think the vaccines work. I, in fact, I know they work, um, and you know, so I wouldn't I wouldn't never call myself an anti vaxxer. But with the masking, you know, this might sound strange, maybe not to you because you know me, but like I am anti masks. I do not want to wear a mask. I find them inconvenient. I hate the way that they feel. I think they totally distort our social lives. But I understand that they're effective. And so I'm going to wear them when necessary, you know, but I, but I also don't like them, you know? So I don't know, like, am I an anti-masker for, for thinking that? I don't know. Uh, Similarly, it's really funny. We get into this strange irony when, when people who are uh, against abortion or, uh, you know, who are talking about, you know, maybe uh, in this case with the mask, they're like, Hey, my body, my choice. But when it comes to abortion, they're like, no, we don't want people to make individual choices. You know, because for some reason they think that it affects um, the babies, you know, in the, in the way that we were talking about before. So I don't know. I guess maybe the, the question that I'll ask you, Josh, and this might be the, the stepping off point here into oblivion is what is your personally, what is your take on abortion? Like, you know, trying to avoid, you know, the political slogans is, is the best that we can. Look, I try to facilitate any sort of context here so (laughs) and again it all stimulates from other this is why it's complex okay because i have as as again for seasoned listeners of this podcast you're going to know this for those of us those of you that are new listening welcome and uh i have problems with capitalism and (laughs) and um and so i take a look at those and i take a look at the the expensiveness of, of of life and i take a look at the quality of life i take a look at the amount of suffering that is from, you know, and again, this is like, everything's on average, like I said, but even in my, you know, even in my graduate program for counseling, it's like the, the studies that have shown strong correlations between early childhood development and being a productive citizen and adult, like are huge, you know, and a lot of that boils down to kind of your home life and and your relationship with your parents. And of course, you know, there are going to be people that are listening to this that did not come from best backgrounds and have great lives. And there's going to be people that listen to this that have had amazing backgrounds and not so great lives. And again, mm-hmm. that just contests the idiosyncratic and the different experiences that we have that, that lead us down different paths. And so my idea is that I, it's, it's, it's simple. I think that pro-life is problematic. I don't think that pro-choice is as bad of a term. I think, uh, I think pro-choice kind of encompasses, you know, and this might be my own biasy, but it encompasses believing in the power of choice as opposed to pro-life is very vague because a lot of the arguments against it go like, well, you know, where, where do you consider life? Is that life already lived? Is that life having lived? Cause for me, my thing with pro-life is, well, then why do you like war? If you consider yourself pro-life for abortion, then you're okay with people killing each other in wars. If it's justified, you know, <laughs> right. or like, or example, like police officers too, if you support the police and like, you think that they have the right to kill people, when it gets hostile or things like that, or if it's, so that's my thing too. If you believe that a police officer in danger has the right to kill another person, yet a woman who is in danger doesn't have a right to not have a child. Like it just seems ass backwards to me. It just doesn't, it's too vague, but choice on the other hand is very specific because it's vague on its, how specific it is. And I know that that's confusing, but it just simply means that that choice should be put into the hands of a woman, especially given 
you know, how it affects her. Like you've mentioned this earlier, but all of these things you have to, to factor into their financial situation, their mental situation. And, you know, having a child is a lifetime commitment. You know, it is something mm-hmm. that is, is so huge mm-hmm. or the quality of that child's life, all of these things that are not being considered, you know, on the opposite side. And, and that's where I kind of get frustrated. And I just think, you know, it is, it's not my choice to make. It is not, you know, and, and, and again, too, I'm also bothered that there are no, not a single shred of responsibility on the man. Like there, it takes two, it takes two people to make a baby, you know, and like, you know, in average, please segment. tell us how the birds and the bees work. <laughs> well, obviously not really because there's, you know, artificial insemination and other things like that. So technology technically <laughs> it, there doesn't need to be two people, but right. for a majority of the cases, a majority of the situations, you know, it, one man has the ability to, to impregnate all sorts of women, yet there's no sense of responsibility or regulation on that. And this is also probably gets us down another rabbit hole and we don't have to talk about this in this given moment, but I want to talk about, you know, the religious problem because there are certain things that have have shown to lessen the rate. So if your if your goal is to reduce abortions, why would you not try to teach practice like safe sex habits or you know try to find some right. sort of contraceptive you know readiness or availability or understanding you know because places that have taken those measures have seen a drastic decrease in abortions and so why is that information not being into effect and for me it kind of is a religious fervor which runs into dangerous territory not separating church and state right okay so basically you're saying you're pro murder of babies i get it now <laughs> uh, now now we know where you stand um no no I, i'm joking yeah i mean the the religious aspect in in blocking a lot of uh, contraceptive measures i find also really strange but i think it comes back to um how certain sects of of conservative christians and and you know very fundamentalist christians really don't want any manipulation of the body especially when it comes to what a woman does um I, you know i find you know it's it's strange, and I, again, I don't know, uh, you know, what to make of it. Although I think the the sort of obvious hypocrisy comes in that the phrasing of pro life, you know, that you were talking about before, and how it sort of contradicts itself all the time. I, I more or less think that uh, that Christians, in a lot of their actions, you know, the most fundamental Christians in a lot of their actions, you know, whether it comes to activism or, or politics, are anti life in in a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I, you know, I like what you were saying though a little, uh, you know, a minute ago about like the responsibility of of the father figure when it comes to uh, the parents because I mean it makes me think of my own of my own history here um, and maybe I'll you know just give some some background here in where I stand is that so when I was presented uh, you know with the the you know with being a father and you know my wife told me that she was pregnant we you know we sort of we had to talk about it right because it's like okay, what are we going to do? Like, are we going to do this? You know, of course we ended up uh, deciding to have the the little shit, um, you know, but he, you know, so it was, it was a, a serious question that we had, that we had to handle. And I, of course, I've, you know, I've wanted kids, um, you know, I wanted to have one with her, you know, cause she's, you know, my best friend. And, um, but you know, the, the more that I thought about it, the more that I've, uh, I've been a father, the more that I've been around and understanding what's going on, I guess I'll just say like, I am against abortions, if that makes sense in all circumstances. However, I understand the obvious health risks, the obvious, um, 
economic burdens. And so I still want that to be an option uh, for people. It, it's sort of like, um, you know, I, I know you don't follow him as much as I have or, or have used to, you know, but Jordan Peterson once in some interview was asked about this, you know, because he's this, he's this conservative figurehead, you know, he was asked about it and he's, and he said something to along the lines, abortion is obviously wrong, but it doesn't capture all of the problems and facets that come along with, with childbirth and the complications of, of our economy and everything like that. So it's not just a simple, you know, pro-life, pro-choice um, answer. And you know, so similarly, you know, I, I sort of I, I, I feel that way in the sense that I really don't want, you know, the life of a child to be taken away when they could have this you know, potential future. However, I found myself in an interesting predicament because when my wife was getting close to term, her health was slowly degrading. I know you sort of know the story a little bit, uh, you know, but she had preeclampsia, which basically meant that she was having higher blood pressure and that her you know, the placenta, which, you know, encases the child in the womb was actually stopped working. And so my child was starting to lose weight and he was starting to like lose um, uh, his heartbeat in the womb, actually within the, within the hour of, of him giving birth. And, you know, it was kind of this crazy headache. It was very stressful and weird, you know, but we ended up getting the, you know, the child out um, in a sort of strange emergency, medical emergency, as if the process isn't already that. But I remember having this conversation with my wife after the fact and uh, because, you know, I was very worried even before him being born. I, I, I thought about wanting to meet him. I thought about how great it would be to be a father. But in that time, you know, we had, we hadn't really prepared to talk about, you know, my wife and I, what we would do if there was a serious complication in the, you know, in the OR, in the, you know, in the uh, birthing you know process and all that. And it wasn't only until after the fact that she told me, this is this is interesting. I'm, I'm sure like off mic, maybe we'll have this conversation altogether. But she told me, she's like, if there was a problem where it came down to a choice between me and the baby, I would have wanted you to choose me. And I thought that was really interesting because because we did, hadn't discussed it and because if there was a problem, I mean, I want both of them to live. I want both of them to be safe and, and, and healthy. But I may have chosen my son. And so I think that is a complicating issue, especially when it comes to perspectives of man, you know, men and women and abortion. So I don't know, I, I, I guess it was sort of rambly there, but I wanted to get your thoughts and like, I, I, I do sort of feel like abortion is such a complicated issue and childbirth is such a complicated issue that we don't really, I don't know if there's really good answers. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And it's, that's difficult. That's a hard position to be in. And I don't, and this is the thing I think with life, this is a really good example. We and out of life have to make a lot of choices and some choices are not the best choices and some choices don't have a clear right and wrong. I think it's ridiculous mm -hmm. to assume that every choice has a clear right or wrong answer. There's not, you know, we all live in the shades of gray. And I think this is one of those debates and one of those arguments that falls right into that category. Cause one argument can understand, like I can get your wife's, you know, wanting to still exist and be around because she's experienced. <laughs> right. Yeah. And again, yeah, yeah. again, like I said, we, we compare and contrast our experiences. I think if I'm trying to justify that in, in, in a way shape, there is already a sense of experience that she has had that she can compare that to not having an experience. 
you know, and then maybe with your son, there has been no experience. And, and then again, too, like anything else is I'm a big proponent and, you know, and things happening when they should or timing being right. And, and maybe she could have said, well, maybe this wasn't meant for us to do this right now. And maybe we can attempt again, you know, and then have Mm -hmm, a baby mm -hmm. later down the road. And maybe that baby was meant to be born, you know, and I take this off my mom. You know, the only thing I'll say is I asked her too. I said, you know, I drove her to, to one of her appointments to get an abortion. And, and as we were driving, I was curious. And I had really? said, yeah, I did. And as we were driving, I had said to her, I had asked, you know, I said, mom, you know, I, you were, you know, almost 20 years old. You know, you had just kind of entered the military um, in the air force. And, and you decided to like, you know, take honorable discharge and raise me like, you know, I, you know, existing now, I couldn't never be mad at you, but I could complete, I could be completely sympathetic to you just starting your military career, you know, just being young and not wanting the responsibility and challenges of raising a child, you know? And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I said, what made you have me then? And what makes you not want to have this baby now? And her answer was that in the moment that I was conceived and she found that she was pregnant, there was just something inside of her that said that she had to keep it. That something that she cannot describe or feel. There was a feeling, there was a, a sense of knowing that she had to see this through. And she's like, in this context and in this time, I just don't have that feeling. You know, I, I don't feel like this, this, like I need to have this baby. I don't have that, that emotional drive, that, that unknown force that I felt like I had with you. And she said, secondly, you know, I am a human who makes mistakes and I'll be honest that like, this was a mistake that I made. And this was a mistake that the partner that I made it with made. And that is something that I will be tied to this man for the rest of my life. If I go through with this, and that is something that is going to cause me so much more pain and most likely cause this child so much more pain that like I'm Mm. choosing in this moment to make this decision. And that was her Mm -hmm. answer. I didn't question it. I just accepted it. Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, first of all, I think that's a really uh, interesting and great answer. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, probably one of the better pro-life choices that we can make is, is to listen to our instincts. And um, especially in that regard, it's, it's like, uh, you know, when you're having a, you know, when you're pregnant, it's like, you feel like, yeah, like I, I'm going to do this. Like, you, you know, you maybe shouldn't question it. You know, it's, it's only when questions start to rise and doubts, um, that maybe it takes a little bit more, uh, you know, thoughtful consideration, um, you know, because, you know, again, like this is sort of what we've been talking about, you know, throughout is, is like, what is the quality of experience? What is the quality of life of that future person? Um, you know, because now you can sit here and, and, and make fun of me that you can, you know, you, you exist, you, you know, you, you exist as a person, um, and, you know, similarly I'm here, you know, and, and we're doing this podcast, like, if we, if we were never born, then we wouldn't be doing this and we wouldn't be having our listeners. We wouldn't be, I don't know. Like there are so many things about the future that is uncertain and, and interesting that, um, that we have to consider when it comes to bringing into a, a life and in, into this world. Sure, and, I want to talk about and, for a little bit here, not to switch gears, but I feel like this is important, no, fine. especially with this, this, I want to talk about the heartbeat for a second. Um, as initially right, because right, right. this, this is a huge talking point this is of contra- controversy. Yeah, this right. is a huge talking point from pro-life. And, uh, and I, I don't know, I guess the, the, this has been brought up before. So people that are familiar with the abortion debate are not going to 
you know, this is not going to be new to them, but it's still interesting to ponder nonetheless. You know, we in most states, if you have a loved one who, for some unforeseeable reason, um, are either brain dead or maybe like, you know, have their lungs, there's, they're not able to, you know, cognitively function or, or some machine is keeping them alive mm-hmm. with no prospect. And we have the right to, or the spouse or somebody who has the power of anything else that has the right to pull the plug on that person. Now, not all states allow this, I will be saying, but a good majority do. And, you know, we somehow don't have as negative of a viewpoint of that. Um, now, as, 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 as a baby, but the, the crux, the reason why that, that, that is brought up, it, it has to do with the idea of a heartbeat, you know, that, that person who is, you know, incapacitated, who has a machine keeping them alive, you know, still has a heartbeat, but they won't be able to participate in aspects that we all might agree is personhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a big majority of them. And maybe that's the the crux of personhood is there's no, def- there's no definitive answer. There's just a compound of things that, that we could attribute to that. And the amount of those you have, you know, really kind of dictates the amount of personhood that we view you to have. And, and if we have no problem with that, then is it really about the heartbeat, Ian? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's interesting, you know, and I, and I just looked it up too. Like, I mean, you know, the first signs of a heartbeat can be, you know, heard you know by an ultrasound within three to four weeks of a of a baby being conceived so there again like this goes back to some women might even not know that they're pregnant within that time um and whether or not a heartbeat is um a demarcation of 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 valued life i mean i don't know to me, you know, okay, if I was if, if I was to think about, okay, a loved one, uh, you know, in a hospital bed in a coma or something like that, and they and we know that they're never waking up, um, whether or not they have a heartbeat, you know, it doesn't really it doesn't really factor into my decision making on what to do with this person. Now, really, it's it's the memories of this person is like, well, if they're once they're gone, they're gone, but at the same time, you know, you don't really want those. Me- you know, your memories to be maybe tainted by a person in a vegetative state, right? You don't want to remember them that way. You'd rather like let them go, you know, off to a better place, you know, it is, you know, to use a term that way. Um, So I don't know. I mean, the heartbeat thing is weird. I think the thing is the reason why that's such a contentious issue is because conservative groups, when they are pushing against abortion, I think a lot of times they're grasping at straws, right? You know, like they are trying to use anything in their ability to show that this, you know, this being in, in, in a person's womb is, it has a life, right. That you, that you can latch onto that they're a future person. And while that's nice, it is still an emotional and moral, uh, moral argument that, that might not factor into all these other arguments that the woman has to consider. Um, it's sort of like, um, okay, so a great example is like, again, I'm, I'm using the mask thing. Uh, it's, you know, uh, we live in Oregon, so we've seen the signs that have been paid for by uh, uh, by the governor's administration, where it says, uh, like, wear a mask, save lives, right? That's sort of like the distilled version that it um, that has come down to. But early on in that campaign, it was just like, hey, like, you might kill your grandma, you know, for not wearing a mask. And it's like, whoa, 
Like, <laughs> I don't think I, you know, like it's sort of like we were talking about earlier with like this, like responsibility being put on somebody else for an action, you know, that is like trying to be foisted upon you. It's like, okay, like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to kill grandma. Like, a virus might get to her that I might transmit and it's the virus doing it. It's the disease. Now, maybe I'm responsible for giving her the virus, but I might not be responsible for getting it. I mean, I don't know. Like again, and also masks aren't 100% effective. They are very, very effective, but they're not 100% effective. Just like condoms, right? Condoms are 99.9% effective of getting sperm across into a vagina, you know, but there's still the very, very tiny percent that it could happen. Um, so like, you can't really, you can't really all of a sudden put blame on, on to people like that, you know? So similar with the, with the heartbeat thing, it's, just, I think it's just another way to guilt people. I, I think it really is. It comes down to guilt. They're like, really, this thing has a heartbeat. You know, it's kind of like, um, you know, all those videos that PETA tries to put out of like uh, um, animal abuses and like factory farms. Right. I, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, you know, videos like this where like they're showing, you know, um, uh, chicken babies, you know, to be raised and produced into like bigger chickens to, to harvest their breasts um, and all the rest of the meat. All of the little chicks that aren't going to be aren't just aren't sufficient enough to raise like real chickens. They just throw in a grinder or they're alive. You know, just like let them, you know, just be grounded up into pace and, and do whatever. Peter releases these videos all the time. They're like, look how terrible this is. It's like, okay, yeah, that looks bad. But, you know, like they're like we're buying this chicken for a reason. Like, you know, people are short food. Like we can't just raise chickens ourselves in our backyard. Some people do it, but it's expensive to do. So it's like there is this huge process behind it. And, yeah, maybe there's one ugly aspect to it. Like, oh, see this person? It has a heartbeat and you're you're murdering you're murdering that person. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like is a it is a bit of a guilt trip. Well, they failed by not hiring Sarah McLaughlin to do the music in the background, because that <laughs> would have motivated much more people um like the Adopted Dog program did. But no In the I, arms of the angels. What I, yeah. what I was just gonna say is what I think about that. I think that the heartbeat argument is actually an attempt to take something, take an emotional response and try to wrap it in a logical bow. Um, and it's not about the sure. heartbeat at all. What it's really about is it's about the mystery and lack thereof mystery. And let me explain that. So we talked about how that the potential of what a life the child may have, we, it's unknown. Like you said, because people mm -hmm. grow up to be presidents and people grow up to be serial killers. Like we have all those and everybody starts as children. And so we don't know the pathway that they're going to take. And it's that unknownness that we're emotionally attached to making sure that they at least can figure that out for themselves. Somebody who is laying on a, on a bed who is, you know, the machine is the only thing to keep them alive. You know, even though they have a heartbeat, really the difference is, is that there has already been an established experience that has already been lived up to that point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we know for certainty that they will no longer be able to live to that same level of experience beyond that point because they've already lived a certain subset and now they're incapacitated permanently forever that they're not going to be able to continue leading that. So the choice is much more clear, you know, but in the other regard, because there is no sense of, and that's why it's different in certain regards. We're not going to get into gen genetics or anything else like that because there's also mm -hmm. that standpoint of, you know, oh, if, if it's found out that your baby is, you know, is going to be born, you know, and it's not going to be able to function at all. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's to the point where it will, it won't be able to even, um, 
have that chance to experience whatever variety that they might experience. You know, it's a little right. more clear, clear cut and dry. So I think that it's this this innate emotional response to to how you value moving forward. But I even think that there's there's that's not even right because look at the foster care system. I mean, to me, if you really were pro life and, and wanted to set up a an environment that women might feel more comfortable to have children, um, a you would support things like childcare. You know that uh, you know, like the government could help subsidize money for childcare or for good education or even that. So that's why is it so expensive to foster a child? Like you, you know, and like there's so many costs that come with either being a foster parent or moving forward with that. And it's not a, you know, a unbroken system. There's no reform that has been done. There's no anything that's been done to make that system more, more experience for for. I guess this is what I'm leading to in a grand scheme. We are so, I feel like the people that are pro-life are so focused on giving that child a potential outcome, but there is no focus on making sure to the best of our ability that that outcome could be more positive than negative on average. Right. For sure. Yeah. There, there's definitely, there's just a hyper focus on, on the life itself and not what, and not the experience of life. Um, it's actually really funny. There's a, in, in, in my city, there's, um, uh, I'm not even sure if they're outside of a clinic, but like, there's all these, pro, you know, like, um, sign holder uppers, you know, where they're uh, protesters, uh, where they're always talking about like anti-abortion on their signs. And I, I always see every once in a while, I see one, it's like, we will adopt your unwanted babies. I'm like, no, you won't. No, you won't. Like, you know, first of all, the adoption process is incredibly difficult to get through. But also, like, that that is just a rhetorical um, uh, thing to, you know, say that abortion is uh, just another way to say that, that abortion is wrong. Like, people aren't just going to go up and, and start adopting kids. And if they did, then this wouldn't be a problem, right? Because, like, mothers would, would you know, if there was a, if there was a vast system where uh, unwanted babies were being adopted left and right, then like we, this wouldn't be that big of an issue. I don't think, I mean, unless it actually came down to a health issue of regarding the actual birth, but I don't think, you know, if there was a, if there was a, a rigorous adoption system where kids didn't fall through the cracks and education was in a much better state than it is now, then we wouldn't be having this issue. The, the fact is that people aren't adopting kids in that high of a rate and foster kids. I mean, I don't know that that's a that's a whole different problem, you know, because like my wife has a little bit of experience in that. I don't. But I know kids that have been I know people have been in the foster care system. And like most of the time, the parents now they might be in a great and loving home for a little while. But like the parents, you know, they get paid an ex, an insane amount of, of money to take on more and more foster parent and more and more foster kids rather. So like I don't know what the actual value of that life is. You know, it's it varies from house to house. I'm, I'm guessing. Um, but again, if we had that rigorous system in place where kids could be given a better life, if they didn't, if they weren't wanted, um, and it was guaranteed, you know, then I don't think we would be having this issue. Well, I think that's why to me, it just points out the, the troublesome nature of the term pro-life and how that is difficult yeah. to encapsulate because all those different avenues might be different, but they still connect back to pro-life. And I think that's why to me, it makes more sense on the pro-choice side because a lot of people that are on the pro-choice side, they're not anti-life, as you have made it very clear. They're actually focused on the lives that are already around. That's why some of the arguments where religious people go, well, like, what about all the parents 
that like can't have children themselves and that are waiting to adopt and you're going to deny them that chance because you're not going to have a kid you're like well what if well it's kind of you know it's a distant <laughs> it's it's I don't know. It's, it's, it's totally a disingenuous. Yeah. It's a disingenuous argument because there are already so many children who need to be adopted, like that are already out there, right? Like, you know, and so you're not focusing on that, and so that's why a lot of people in the pro-choice camp call them anti-choice. You know, that's the side of the anti-choice, not necessarily the pro-life, because they're arguing that again. There's all these other aspects of life that are being neglected, and you know, I said this earlier, but I want your opinion on it. Like war, Ian, do you think that? Like, what do you think is going on in the mind of a person who, who thinks that it's it's murder to abort a child, but think but justify war? Right, right. Well, I mean, that's that's an interesting one. I mean, because I was thinking about that a little bit earlier, like in calling abortion murder. Well, what is murder? Right. You know, I, I've gotten I've actually gotten into this conversation quite a few times online. It's kind of funny, like how people kind of seem to to miss the plot here, and you know, people say murder is wrong. It's like, well. Yeah, it's murder. Yeah, you you can't actually debate that. Like you, it, it's it's a tautology. You can't just say murder is wrong because it being wrong is within the definition of the word. Murder is the unjustified or wrong killing of another human being. Right? It's a legal category, um, you know, or well, it's a moral category, but it like has ramifications in the in the legal world, right? And so, when it comes to war. For example, when it comes to you know the killing of, of people in, in in service of the war, um, you one has to imagine what the definitions and what the what the um, uh, what the goals of wars are, right? So the goal of war is not necessarily to kill people; it is either to take claim over a resource, protect another resource, or gain land, or um, you know, defend, defend or protect something, uh, or it is to push back uh, against an opposing force. It's not necessarily about the killing of people. It's just when that killing of people does happen, it is justified for the, for the initial cause or, or goal of the war. And so with that in mind, you have to understand, okay, well, well what are the justifications? So if you, okay, let's just say that you, you willingly get pregnant and you're like, Oh, I don't care. I'll, I'll just get another abortion. You know, like I'll just do this and that, like I'll, I'll fuck willy nilly without getting birth control or, or asking my partner to use birth control. It don't, it doesn't matter. I'll just get an abortion. That seems to be, I, I don't know how many women really do that. Probably not very many, if at all, but that seems to be probably be an unjustified use of, of an abortion. However, with wartime, for example, I think there are plenty of wars that we could consider unjustified, like the Afghan war that we just <laughs> sort of got out of, um, where it probably resulted in the death of many people, including Americans lives that are probably didn't deserve to be killed, you know, because they were probably over there for stupid reasons. I'm sure there are a lot of young kids, really kids who are, uh, who join the military at a young age and who think they're going over there to fight for a just cause. And then maybe later on in life, you know, they get out of the military. Maybe they have se severe PTSD. Maybe they lost their friends. Maybe they lost a limb. Maybe they, they died, you know? So like, is that justified then? So we have to look at the justifications for that. That's what it comes down to is justifications. And people are willing to all the live long day, make justifications for, you know, heinous things. I mean, you know, just look at history. So I, I think that, you know, part of the issue that we're running into here, I actually really liked the phrase that you used earlier. People are trying to put a logical bow on something wholly irrational. Um, emotional. And, not irrational. Yeah, emotional. You know, it's, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's sort of what we're dealing with here. And so um, I don't know, I I would never go out and say, you know, you know, the people who are getting abortions are murderers, you know, because that just doesn't make sense as far as a legal or legal category specifically. Um, But war yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's sort of a whole the whole. No, I'll say this so I, I, I agree with your I agree with your assessment here on the crux of this is is justification of action, you know, and, mm-hmm. and war has a very clear one most of the time, you know, and we have this valor and this honor system, and and that's kind of how we set it up. But I I still think that it's it's very, I don't know, the justification of actions of actions is is, is difficult, and I guess what I'm the the point that I'm really making is that through the context of pro-life you are making the statement that all life is sacred that's what a lot of people say on the pro-life side so when you make the statement that all life is sacred you know then that tells me and maybe i'm wrong here but that tells me that there is an there is an assumption then or an attachment to the fact that if all life is sacred then there is no there should be no justifiable way for taking it and they are telling people that are pro, like pro-choice, they're telling that these women who, for whatever reason, and the deal is, is like your example prior, I'm not saying that those people don't exist, but we don't make rules for the exceptions. We make rules for the majority. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I just think that in that regard, they're telling these people that no justification you could ever make justifies the taking of a sacred, like of, of a life. And so I am just trying to take that little nugget and pick that up and throw that into a situation where you're like, no, that's different. There's justification there. And you're like, well, how, you know, the core crux of belief. And this is where you are right. You want to know where it differs. It doesn't logically differ. It differs because it's just a different emotional reaction, you know, and that's what it all boils down to. And I just don't think that we govern necessarily emotionally because there's a lot of different aspects that we have to decide as a society that yet sometimes one might argue that an emotional perspective might be more damaging than not, um, you know, depending on liberties or rights or things of that nature. And so when I have this view about the society that I want to live in, you know, that emotional response really should just, it just boiled down to the person who should have to make that difficult choice to whether or not decide to have a child or not. For sure. Well, and I think, you know, a large part of this comes down to, um, to ideology, right? You know, ideology is a framework for thinking. It is not a, um, it's not something that you necessarily think out of. Sometimes you can, depending on the circumstances, but people hold contradictions in their mind all the time. And so what is what ideology allows that to do, if it sort of fits your priors, um, reasonably well, then it allows you to make these contradictory errors and allows you to justify, you know, heinous acts. Um, It's sort of like, okay, you know, we can look at slavery, for example, you know, like you wouldn't want to, okay. So the founding fathers, they wanted all individuals be treated equally and be treated as as humans. Um, But when people were still having slaves, you know, the justification there probably in some aspects in some, you know, maybe not all, but that the slaves, you know, people from Africa or wherever, maybe weren't human, right? So then you wouldn't have to treat them as human. And so, and because there's an ideological structure in place there, then you don't really have to think about it. And that's part of with, you know, the justifications like, oh, well, you know, like I'm going to go fight for my country, maybe go kill some Arabs, you know, but like all life is sacred. Don't have an abortion. Like 
those are two contradictory ideas, but within a framework of that ideological spectrum, then it allows it, those ideas are allowed to to exist in the same place because they they are in service of something like a tribe or like your political party or, or, or something like that. You know, maybe it's nationalism, something, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I take the argument here. And this is the one thing that when I, you know, and I don't, I don't get in debates with pro-life people very often, but the few times that I have, the thing that I like to bring, the thing that I like to bring up, which I know has been said on Twitter and, and other places before, but it's important for this conversation is that, you let's take the way that certain conservatives or Republicans look at gun control. Okay. So anytime you try to have some sort of regulations to make guns safer, and now one can make a pro-life argument that like guns are a tool for murdering people. That's just what they are. They are effective way to do that. That's, that's kind of what I say most of the time. I'm just like, you might call it a tool for protection, which I think protection is a secondary like thing. Like it, it could, it could be a tool for protection, but that's not what the tool is designed for. It's designed for killing people, which inevitably can be equated to protection after the fact. It's a second tier. Um, you know, and so you look at this and you you make the statement that if we have regulations, whether that be certain weapons that shouldn't be sold or certain inventory databases or mental health checks or yada yada hoozy, the first, you know, one of the talking points is, well, you cannot, like, people are, let's be realistic here. Like, criminals are just not going to not get guns. Like people are just not going to not have guns. So like if people are still going to have access to guns, then it's null and void to, to regulate them. It's silly because it's not going to be realistic. And it's that aspect of realism that I focus in when it comes to the abortion debate. Cause I go, okay, well then let's kind of take that same mind frame here and let's put it to the other side. To me, it is unrealistic to assume that women are not going to have abortions. So you're mm -hmm. telling me that banning them or, or making them near impossible to get them is going to solve your problem? No, it, realistically, what it's going to do is going to make it much more difficult for these women to get it. And so they're probably going to make choices that might be more harmful to them and their baby in the long run, you know, or anything else. I mean, there, I just watched this video where this lady from this Texas clinic had said that, you know, she had called and it was, it was a 13 year old girl who happened to be raped and was pregnant. And they couldn't, they had to turn her away because there were certain requests. Mm -hmm. And then the next place she can go was like something like it was like New Mexico, which was hundreds of thousands of miles away. Da -da -da. And so they said that this girl got so frustrated. She had like told the doctor, well, let, I'm going to call you. I'm going to open up my medicine cabinet and tell you what like is in there. And you can tell me what might help me. And it's like, yeah. just, you hear stories like that, you know, and that just tells me that from a realistic standpoint, if you're going to use that same kind of logical thought patterns for gun control, to me, it imports over pretty beautifully onto the other side of that argument against why they are saying the things that they are saying. It is not realistic. Again, we, we respond emotionally. We do things like that. Why not try to set up something? And, and last thing I'll say here on this topic is that people that are pro-choice are not pro-abortion. You know, that's also something that's linked from pro-lifers. And like, you know, and you kind of made a comment about yourself. You were like, I support the right to choose, but I would hope that it, you know, less and less has to come to those options. And so it just seems to me that it's disingenuous and it's lazy to not focus on the crux of why these numbers might be high and deal with external forces 
that affect that rather than just banning it and saying it's cut and dry because that goes against your original logic on other talking points that you have. And that bothers me a great deal, Ian. For sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe the last thing I'll say here too, as the person who is maybe more sympathetic uh, to, to capitalism, uh, not, not that much, but I am <laughs> more sympathetic to it, um, is that, you know, when, when governments ban things, black markets arise. Drug, the, this is why we have the drug war. This is why we have a black market for drugs. You know, when we, um, you know, try to stamp down on people making certain modifications to firearms or, or ban certain firearms altogether, people will 3D print them. You know my idea? Um, you, Ian, know, you know what I think of? The prohibition. Like, Oh, sure. Even yeah, the, yeah. I mean, One There's would argue that even the American the government 20s. was like, shit, there is so much money being made by people. Like, we got to get this back on track. We got to get some of this action. <laughs> but, <laughs> Precisely. But no, but you're not wrong. Like, Precisely. there was a void that was filled and like the amount of mob bosses that became wealthy and popular just due to the fact that alcohol was no longer available. So it created a whole black market, you know, for, for trade and stuff like that. So yeah, sorry. I just, I just, I had to say that because it no, just reminded me of the prohibition. No, you're totally, you're totally right. I mean, and then, you know, look, look at the, look at the, Billions of dollars that Colorado made in tax money as soon as they legalized recreational marijuana. I mean, you know, that's a huge source of Oregon, too. And what's fascinating about Oregon is Oregon hit their annual projected revenue rate in the first three weeks. (laughs) So what what the state assumed that they would make in a year period, they made that in three fucking weeks. For sure. And, you know, most most states, if not the entire federal government, already has a, a tax revenue problem. Right. So, like, I mean, if you just ban things, then you can't you can't make your your money back on that. And so with abortions, for example, I mean, yeah, you are just going to have more back alley abortions, you're going to have more dangerous abortions. Women might be taking. Yeah, I mean, they might be taking all sorts of things out of their cabinet. They might try to do it themselves. I mean, it's 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 not good. And I think. That you know, maybe the lesson, and this might be the last thing that I'll that I'll say is the lesson that we should take from this is that this is not this is not the the way to solve problems that we have. Is if we ban it, they're like, oh, it'll go away. I, it'll go away after we, after we ban it. I promise. The, the, no, that's not how it works. It's the same thing with like with ideas, right? If we burn certain books, or if we say that people can't you know, say certain things or have these certain ideas, those ideas don't go away. If we ban Alex Jones from Twitter or from YouTube, Alex Jones doesn't go away. Maybe we don't hear from him as much, but he still has a following. You know, there, there are other places on the internet or people, places where people can meet the, the ideas and stuff just don't go away if you, if you ban them. So I think, you know, really is what we have to do is we have to understand the problems and not just say like, well, if we just ban it, it, it'll be fine. Well, they'll go away. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing that I really want to wanted to make sure that I say in this is, is the, the viewpoint that I have is, is there, I guess I don't put as much weight on the, the on potential. If that's the rhetoric retort or the, the, the term I'm going to use here is the, so, the, okay. I guess this is the correct here. This is the two things that, I have. I'm trying to d- d- to match the this idea. Your last sentence is turning into a last paragraph. It's going to be a last paragraph. Last page, well, no, I mean, last I, book, I, last book I ever wrote. Oh my gosh! I want to address this idea that people who are told that they should wear masks or people that support the mask mandate, um, you know, people that don't support it, are saying things like "my body, my choice." So if you know, they're trying to turn the argument around. 
And mm-hmm. now I'm not saying that it's it's a direct false equivalency. I'm not saying that it's it. There's not some points that are to be made there. I I think that again, when it comes down to the main difference of why that might be difficult to assume is for me it's it's where I draw the line, is that again a person who already exists who's susceptible to the virus it's 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 a you know it's a civic duty to try to prevent spread and to be as nice as possible because it does have the potential to kill people who are already living existing lives there is no such thing as a potential there it's already happening but the difference between that right. is there is a potential that has not been arrived yet and when that's the case and that's the context in which opinions and and choices are being formulated then I think the onus goes to the person who is experiencing that, who is already having this existence and these thought patterns. And I just guarantee a little bit of sympathy here. It's not easy for any woman to make that choice. It's also like, you know, neglecting the fact that the, like you said, we've mentioned earlier, the role that it takes for, you know, most men who participate in that, who tend to have no like understanding there. And it boils back down to this idea that I would like to think that if my situation was in, if my shoes were, were switched, then the reality is, is that there are so many things that that choice will affect that it's so massive and so large that that is an example of a choice that should be made by the individual. And that's just, that's all I'll say. For sure. Um, yeah. So I think with that being said, um, I think we, I mean, this topic is by no means exhausted, but, um, this, you know, this is probably the best that we can do considering, um, for the moment. And I think there's always more to, to come back to. So, um, Josh, I think, uh, I think we'll get out of here. Yeah. Thanks for listening say? guys. Really do appreciate you. Um, and yeah, we'll see you next time on the NBS podcast. Bye. Bye. Uh, everything that guy just says bullshit. Thank you.